Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web. With breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers. It's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. Litbreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's litbreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is not on AM radio. This is about people who know how to do grammar stuff. How are you today? What's going on? My name is Brad Listy. <clears throat> I'm here in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Mary Beth Keen. She has a new novel out from Scribner. It's called Fever. It involves uh, impoverished immigrants, communicable disease, and a lifetime of pain and suffering, among other things. And I'm going to be talking with Mary Beth in just a moment. First, uh, however, I, w- I would like to go over a few things, and this might be review. But, you know, if you missed the last episode, number 261, with Antonia Crane, then you missed my announcement about the new website. This podcast has uh, a new website design and a new website address. The address is uh, otherppl.com. Again, uh, that URL is otherppl.com. So, uh, you know, if you go to the old site, it'll just bounce you to the new site. If you happen to have links posted 
to uh, past episodes that are existing out there on social media or what have you, uh, those links will just automatically point to the new address. Does that make sense? You don't have to worry about it. Everything will work. And uh, the show also has a new logo. I've done a little rebranding, and uh, you've probably seen that logo by now, I would imagine. If not, check it out. Uh, And then also, and perhaps most uh, interestingly, uh, the new website also has a brand new magazine component. So otherppl.com not only features this podcast, it it is also going to be featuring some original written content uh, by me and uh, some other writers. Specifically, uh, I am uh, am partnering with two young authors named uh, Mira Gonzalez and Spencer Madsen. They've both been guests on this show and uh, together we're going to be writing regularly over at otherppl.com, and we will uh, be inviting guest authors to participate from time to time. So check that out. Uh, also, also, if you follow the show on Twitter, the Twitter handle has changed. Instead of at otherpeoplepod, it is now at otherppl. So you, do you see what we're doing? We're trying to make everything streamlined and organized and consistent. So if you're already following the show on Twitter, you don't have to do anything. Just sit, just sit tight. You're good. The feed is exactly the same. It's just the handle that has changed. If that makes sense. So if you don't follow us and you would like to follow uh, the podcast and or the magazine on Twitter, you can find us at other PPL. Okay. Uh, what else? I think that's it. Oh, you know what? That's not it. Email. You can email me if you would like at letters at other PPL.com. That's uh, the new email address. The old address, letters at other com. that still works. Either one works. But for the sake of consistency, uh, I am now going to go with letters at other PPL.com. Okay. And uh, speaking of email, I thought I would read a letter from a listener. This one comes from a guy named Joe who writes, Dear Brad, it was a typical day at work. I was at my desk funding auto loans. In between each loan, I was searching for literary interviews on my iPhone. I have always found it intriguing to learn about an author's background, writing process, etc. So needless to say, I was enthralled when I came across your podcast. This past weekend, I found myself gushing about your show to my girlfriend as we made our way to my little cousin's birthday. I digress. I come from a place where sports, partying, and network television are embedded in the culture. To quote True Detective, I've never been good at parties. So, I spent most of my formative years doing drugs and drinking to quote blend in. I now chalk this up as a casualty of adolescence. It wasn't until I started becoming an adult that I became aware and somewhat less ashamed of my intrinsic observatory nature. This awareness has been both a blessing and a curse. While I am more at peace with myself, I do tend to feel lonely, depressed, and a little cut off from the rest of society. The latter seems to stem from the personal choices I've made to take myself more seriously as a writer. So, to get back to the car ride with my girlfriend, what started as a gush about various authors' lives turned into this sort of self-analyzing conversation about what I was really getting out of your show. 
and what my girlfriend quickly pointed out to me was this. I don't listen to your podcast to learn about the author's lives necessarily. I listen to your podcast because I can relate in one way or another to what you and your guests talk about. And it's not just what you're saying to each other, but the way you're saying it. It makes me feel like I am a part of the conversation and in a way I guess I am. I don't want to get too sentimental about this whole thing, but your podcast has opened my eyes to a world I never knew existed, and as a result, I feel less alone in the world. And this may come off as a a little selfish or odd, but I find comfort in thinking that maybe you do the show because you feel this way too. Anyway, this past week, I have applied to a college where I plan on majoring in English and creative writing. From there... I want to pursue my MFA. At the age of 27, I feel like I'm still young enough to make my dreams of being a published author come true. So thank you, Brad, for your curiosity, your courage, and your conversations. Signed, Joe. So thank you, Joe. That's an awfully kind letter, and uh, I appreciate hearing that. Do you like the sad piano music underneath? (laughs) I have to give credit to Howard Stern for that. He always does that on his show when people pour their heart out, um, their hearts out, you know, just fucking with you. So, uh, you know, to answer your question though, Joe, or to reply to uh, what you were saying, you're correct. You know, uh, you, you do a podcast, you do any kind of thing where you're trying to communicate with people. I think you're trying to mitigate against loneliness. And, uh, for me as well, I think I'm trying to cut, uh, you know, cut through some of the two dimensionality of the internet which I think I've mentioned before. And uh, that's really the genesis of it. That's why I started doing this thing. And it's been gratifying to learn that uh, I'm not the only person who wants to hear some actual voices. In addition to uh, reading tweets and whatnot. So thank you for listening. Thanks for writing. Uh, Everybody else out there, if you would like to email me and uh, let me know what you think of the show or tell me a story or whatever. The address is letters at otherppl.com uh, or letters at otherpeoplepod.com. You have two options now, so you get to pick one. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty, and Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today, once again, is Mary Beth Keen. Uh, it's a pleasure to have her here on the program. And hey, did I mention that back in 2011, she was named one of the National Book Foundation's five under 35. Five authors under the age of 35 
uh, whose stars are on the rise. So uh, here she is, Mary Beth Keene. Her new novel, Fever, is available from Scribner. And uh, this right here is the two of us in conversation. I'm at my house in Pearl River, New York, which is about, I guess it's about 15 miles north of the George Washington Bridge, if you're familiar with the city. Sure. Uh, So um, close, but far away. You know, it feels like definitely outside the city here. Um, but we can get in close, you know, pretty fast when you, we want to. Do you and, go? Do you go to the city? Because like this, this I live in Los Angeles, and I feel like I live mm-hmm. like you know tw- twenty five minutes in decent traffic from the ocean. I don't go to the ocean, but you don't though. go. Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of people here don't. I run into people all the time who haven't been to the city in twenty five years, and then some people, many people, commute in every day. I go some weeks. I'm in there three times a week, and then not for a month. You know, so it's it's weird. But I find, especially this winter, has been brutal in New York. That I want, I just got, I have to get out of this house, and I have little kids, and we just pack them in the car and go into the city, and you know, at least you can see people. Nobody's hibernating like they are here, right, in the suburbs. So I, I like I like a dose of the city pretty often. Yeah. Um, so I try to get in like once a week, but sometimes a couple weeks go by. Well, and it also seems silly to live that close and to not take advantage of it. I mean. That's what I think. I mean, the school, the public schools are great here. That's why we, and I grew up in this town. I actually grew up in the ta- in the house right next door to where I'm living now. No kidding. Um, which is weird. You know, I'm at ShopRite and I run into my fifth grade softball coach, you know, and things <laughs> like that. Um, or, you know, a, a mother I might have told off as a bratty seventh grader. Um, but it's been really nice at the same time. But, you know, it can also feel a little claustrophobic. So it's nice to to get out and remind ourselves that we used to live elsewhere, even though we're in the exact same spot we started in now. How did you get there? How did you wind up living in the house? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I honestly think about this probably every other day. (laughs) So we lived in central Virginia. Well, we lived in Manhattan for a couple of years, like a lot of people do after college. And I went to college in the city. And then I did an MFA program at EVA, which is in Charlottesville. Sure. And, um, I had just gotten married, so my husband came down there with me, and we stayed for four years. Then we lived in Philly, in Center City, for a couple of years. And then I was expecting my second child and um, figuring out how to write with kids. And I just had no, you know, network in Philly, no help, no backup. You know, even signing those things at daycare, like your emergency contact, I didn't have a single person as an emergency contact. So we started thinking about moving closer to home. And there was an elderly couple in this house, and my mom kept mentioning it. You know, the house next door is free. They're going to put it on the market soon. And we laughed and laughed and thought, oh, my God, can you imagine that? That would be (laughs) absolutely the last resort. And then I was getting more and more pregnant, and we were having no luck. And suddenly that house was looking really, really good. Yeah. Um, So we did it. It ended up being really nice. My dad is not well. He has Parkinson's. It's pretty advanced. And we help each other and you know, it's, but it's great for the kids. They run back and forth. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'll be in the shower and then my mom is also in the bathroom telling me something, you know, <laughs> she just come into the house oh, no. to say, you know, <laughs> if you keep your heat that high, your bill is going to be out of this world. <laughs> you know, she never does that when my husband's home, she'll knock yeah. or ring the doorbell and be very formal. But if she knows I'm in here alone, she'll just appear. Um, but you know, that can also be funny. 
Okay. So, yeah. And this is the thing. I've, I think about this sometimes because you, you read these things about uh, how people remain happy, how they have healthy, happy lives. And a lot of it is like social connectivity. And mm-hmm. I, I'm like, I'm fascinated by like centenarians. And I've read, I read a book by God, who was it? It was all about like the longest lived peoples in the world and like what their common threads were. And like one of them was that the, the family unit um, like, and the extended family stays connected and geographically close. And then there's also like, not this like discarding or this like hiding of the elderly, the way that we tend to do, uh, in the United States so often where like they just, yeah. they sort of get shuffled off to homes or they're just left alone to like watch, you know, the view and I, I don't know, whatever it yeah, would be. And right. so, um, did, do you find that like the, I mean, the good has to weigh, outweigh the bad. I mean, it, I, I kind of envy it in a way to just have family. It right definitely. It does. I mean, the good definitely. Outweigh. I mean, there's moments where you feel like a teenager. At least I do when I'm with my parents. But it's been, I think, when my kids were little and they were starting to learn how to walk and how to be in the world, we noticed how careful they were. And they can be wild. They're boys. But around my dad, they were always careful and cautious and would help, you know, reach out a tiny little hand, you know, to help them up. It sounds corny, yeah. but they saw us treating him in a certain way. And we started to notice that they were copying us. And, you know, not that I think my father's illness is there to serve my little, you know, precious babies, but which I think is somehow how it comes off sometimes. But um, I think having everybody together at, Exactly what you said. I think it's good for kids and it's good for adults. I think sometimes my kids keep my parents and my other, you know, elderly aunts and uncles young, like all the kids in the family do. I have an enormous family. And I think also, you know, the kids are reminded that you can't, you're not number one. Right. You can't, there's a lot of people in this group and everybody has an opinion about, you know, what to do or what to eat or, you know, what show to watch or what to have for dessert, you know, and you are only one voice in this huge gang of people. Um, and, and that's been good because we were self-conscious about that. We, my husband's parents are from Ireland and so are mine. And we spent a lot of time in both places. And, uh, you know, I think there is something different about American kids. Um, and we wanted, and, you know, I'm an American kid and I get that, but we wanted to make sure that they were not, you know, so cherished that they were lost track of, of themselves in the world, you know, and they knew that they were just, you know, they were no more or less important than anybody else. Right. And, and moving home has helped that a well, lot. And now, now like the mission has got to be to like find two more houses on that block for I know. your sons to eventually move into. <laughs> well, I'm working on my sisters first. You know, my sisters are both shocked and appalled at this. We've been here now for three years. And they've not stopped making fun of me. Um, but one, one is married. She doesn't have kids, but See, I keep telling them, you know, things change when you have kids. And they're like, right. well, then we will never have kids because this is not happening. But every time, yeah, a house goes for sale nearby, you know, we clip it, we email it. I'm like, are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> well, but here's the thing, though, because I went through this as well. Like, my parents live in kind of a suburban like Narnia, like there's just like parks and there's kids and they, they live in a, like a young family neighborhood, uh, even though they're, you know, in their sixties. And, uh, I used to go there and just be like, this is so weird. You know, like, why are all these kids everywhere? And you know, <laughs> this, this green lawn and you know, like it just would freak me out. And now 
uh, when my wife and I visit with our daughter, it's like, this is so great. Like it's so, you know, you just all of a sudden your eyes open and it's not that I've like become a fundamentally different person or or I guess in maybe some ways I have, but you just learn to, uh, appreciate those conveniences. You have other things to worry about, you know? Yeah, exactly. And you guys have, and the other thing too, is that you guys have like, uh, you have childcare help, I would imagine with your mom right there at least. Yeah, she's a good, um, I mean, I, she's not the kind of grandma that you can say I'm dropping them off at you every day, like while I go next door and write. And they're also not the kind of parents who believe writing is a proper job. You know, at at this point, they think it's a great hobby that I've, you know, made a career out of, but I I don't think they take it all that seriously. Um, So they are in the older ones in kindergarten now and the younger ones in school, but they're great for, back up, you know, if somebody's sick or if I have to travel, which I've had to a lot for the second book. Um, or if you, you know, just, or if, if you just want to go out to dinner, <laughs> right? That they're not great about, you know, uh, they were like, listen, everybody get a babysitter for that. But if it's work related, then but you know, they want to go. My mom is getting younger as time goes on. This is my theory and wants to have fun. So sometimes if we pitch, you know, a great night, let's say in the city, she's like, sounds good. I'm in, you know, like, Oh no, no. Uh, people are going to leave the kid with you. And she's, you know, that's just not, that's not happening. And I don't, I don't blame her. I think I'm going to be like that. Yeah. She raised her kids. That's right. She's ready for some action. Yeah. But the thing is I I kind of went into it and my mom's pretty good and we can leave our daughter sometimes, you know, like, but the thing about it is that, uh, not as much as you'd think like they have, there is a limit and you can kind of, I can kind of feel my mom being like, okay, I'm tapping out. Grandma did her thing. You know? Right. But aren't you, don't you get that though? Oh, completely. I mean, I'm completely. tapped out. Yeah, I think, but I think before I had a kid, I was like, oh yeah, she'll constantly want to be around her grandchild because, you know, but because they're so in love. Because with her, they're yes. so in love. But the kids are kids. They, they're exhausting. And there's no one, you know, when you're the parent, I think you have like a, like, you sort of have to have like a, an almost bottomless, um, like reserve of energy to invest in it. But when you're the grandparent, it's like, okay, we did our weekend. <laughs> and like now we're going to. Yeah. Go back we to filled it. them with cookies and Sprite, and now they're yours again. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, so how did you – so you said you're from a big family, Irish family, first-generation yeah. American. Um, yeah. And like I, I come from a – I guess some, somewhat Irish, Irish-Italian. But Everybody is a little Irish, I think. Yeah, and Catholic uh, yeah. and just these big families. Like how many kids were in your family? Well, I have, I have two sisters which is not a big family. Okay. But my mom is one of nine and my dad's one of 11. Holy so God. my mom's one of nine too. Oh, wow. That's, well, you guys are Catholic. Well, that's the generation. Um, that's the generation where they, yeah. they were like no birth control. We're just going to, you know, multiply. <laughs> like God bless them. Here's another one. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I had a lot of first cousins was the, uh, was what made the group big, I guess. And my mom is nine, but they're all sisters except for one. Uh, she only has one brother. And I think that, makes it feel I think when you have brothers and the brothers have wives the family sort of branch off you know because I think I think the woman is mostly in charge of most families I know no offense I don't know you can argue with me but it seems to break that way from what I've noticed and when you have sisters who like to talk a lot and stick together look we were always with my mom's sisters and our cousins on that side always yeah my mom comes from uh nine children you know nine children it was seven girls and two boys Oh, wow. So you have almost the same deal. Almost the same deal. And the cousins yeah. are close. I mean, we, we were not, I, I did not grow up geographically close to my cousins, which I regret. They were down in the South. It would have been fun to kind of have that experience. But were you surrounded? Like, were all your cousins essentially in the same area of New York? 
Um, the ones who were in, in the U.S. were all in Westchester and Rockland, um, all of them. And, but there was a big contingent. I, I'd say half were still in Ireland. But we used to go back there a lot as kids, especially when our grandparents were alive. Um, and the ones actually in Ireland were closer to, our, to my age and my sister's age than the ones here. The ones here were a little older than us. But then because of that, we just worshiped them. Everything they did, sure. we, we wanted to do. Um, but now Ireland seems a lot closer. And, and when the economy over there was booming, which it's now not, they were coming here a lot. So it was, it was great. You know, we didn't have to always go there. And it, it seems, you know, because of email, I guess, and the almighty Facebook, everybody's sort of keeping closer tabs on each other and it, I think we've been we've, we're getting closer as we get older instead of sort of move, moving further apart well that's cool and, and you talk yeah. about talk about like the family being split geographically between Ireland and the states like what brought mm-hmm. your your uh, folks over to the states um, I think it's different for my mom and my dad my dad is from Connemara have you ever been no, to Ireland no I never have it's on my list but I haven't been so Connemara they're both from the west but Connemara is um very rural, you know, very um, empty. It's got, it's beautiful. It's like the real Ireland, they say. And he grew up in a Gaelic where they only spoke Irish. And it was just really remote. But in the 50s and 60s, there was no work at all. And he was the second oldest of 11. And, you know, he, he there was just no option. He could go to England or he could go to America. Uh, and England, I think as an Irish person in England, you really are a second-class citizen. And in America, you weren't, you know, you, you could be what everybody else was, you know, especially when Kennedy became president, which wasn't a small deal. It really loomed big, you know, being from over there and seeing what the grandchild of Irish immigrants could be. I mean, it sounds so corny, but it really was true. There was a big picture of Kennedy I was just in my say, grandfather's house. I was, yeah. That, that, that's not, that's not a apocryphal. That kind of thing really. Happened. No. Sacred Heart of Jesus, which is terrifying with its like bloody crown of thorns, and John F. Kennedy Jr. I mean John F. Kennedy, and he, and so he came. I mean he just had no money and no, you know, means of making any money, and so he came to a cousin. Um, he actually went to Pittsburgh first because that's where they had a relative, and the daughter, I guess, of his father's cousin, was a woman in her 30s, and she was still in school, and my dad thought my God, she must be the stupidest American <laughs> who ever lived. And of course it turns out later we figure out she'd done this, you know, very prestigious PhD program and she was brilliant. But, you know, things like that are, are funny to figure out. So what did he do? Like, did, did he, I mean, what's his story? He did lots of things when he came here. He, um, in the very beginning, he did something in a factory. And I mean, my dad, I should say first, is not, he doesn't take a lot of trips down memory lane. And when you have a daughter who's a writer, they're very suspicious of saying anything interesting <laughs> right. in case it shows up somewhere. But he, um, I know he drove a cab for a while. He worked at a, um, a meat packing place, not a butcher, but they would like, I think, break down the meat in like a large scale way. Then he was in, that was on the West side highway in New York. He said, he still says that was the hardest job he ever did. I was just going to say, my grandfather was a butcher and uh, on my dad's side and that's some rough work, man. Yeah. Uh, just that whole industry is just, that, that's, that's difficult. Yeah. Then he became a sand hog and that's what he did for 30, over 30 years. A what hog? Um, a sand hog, a New York city tunnel worker. 
um, they build the, the water tunnels under the ground, way, way, way under, like several hundred feet below the sidewalk, which is a weird job. I focused part of my first book on it because I felt like a lot of people don't know about it. Um, but it's such, yeah. So New York has these water, these two water tunnels that were built, um, in the late 1800s and they have been failing for probably 50 to 75 years now leaking, get, they get patched, they leak. And if these tunnels fail, there's no water going to New York city. Like people don't realize how serious it is. And so in 1970, um, they started building a third tunnel that would take the place of the first two and they're still building it. It was supposed to have been completed, I think in, in 2000, but it's not completed yet. They're hoping 2020 it'll be done. Um, but it's the largest capital construction project in New York city's history. And it's huge. I mean, and nobody sees it cause it's so far below the sidewalk. How many, how many feet below? Um, it can range anywhere from 300 feet to a thousand feet. Holy you know, shit. which is taller than like the Empire State Building turned upside down, which is how I thought of it. Oh my God! So okay, so there's there's this tunnel underground. Where's the, yeah. Where's the water? The water's coming from the river. They funnel it. The in water there? comes from for New York City. The water comes from upstate, and so it has to travel a long way, and it has to get to all five boroughs. So it's a huge, huge project. See, this is the thing. I think about like a place like New York City. You just look at it, and you look at it above ground, and you see all these buildings, and you look at like the the new Freedom Tower or whatever uh, whatever it's called, and it's like, yeah. like who knows how to build these things? What's the first? I, don't know. I, I always ask myself when I look at like a large scale construction project like that. I'm like, what's the first thing that you do? <laughs> you know, like what's yeah. the, what literally is the first action? I'm, I'm amazed that uh, human beings can do this stuff. You're going to dig a tunnel a thousand feet below the ground, like. What, what's the first well, my dad's thing? always amazed by the engineers who can tell just by looking at, as he says, like pieces of paper and they have their equipment, like exactly where, you know, two pieces of the tunnel will meet or where something's going to happen, you know, and they're not really like in the trenches the way my dad and his cronies were. And they just, the way they know things just from like being educated, as my dad would say, is, is was remarkable to him. And, what, and I really think influenced him coming home and saying, you girls have got to go to college. Right. Because they teach some amazing stuff there, apparently. Well, and these, and these guys aren't a thousand feet underground, like digging a tunnel, you know? like Right. They make little visits. Yeah. yeah. But they <laughs> mostly are up, you know, and they have their like brand new wellies on and everything is, you know, immaculate. Um, but they know what's going to happen and when and what to expect and, and it, whatnot. It's got to be dangerous work, though, being underground like that. It's like mining. Yeah, it's urban mining. That's uh, sometimes they're called urban miners too. Um, it is dangerous. They have introduced, or years ago, they introduced this giant piece of machinery called the mole, which sort of cuts the tunnel. Used to be they used explosives, and they'd have to just like get away in time. Um, <laughs> but they say for this this project, it's been a man a mile has died since it began in 1970. Oh my god! Which is. Um, you know, just scary. He's been to a lot of funerals. We all have and injuries. He got several injuries over the years. How, how, but they don't talk about it. You know, they don't just, yeah, you know. It's just what you do. I visited a, a water tunnel when I was researching my first book, and it was, um, you know, really dark and wet and not a place you'd want to work, you know, 10 hours a day right. for 30 years. No kidding. So... 
um, growing up, uh, you, you know, he didn't, did he bring the work home? He didn't, doesn't sound like he talked about it much when he came home. Well, the weird thing is about that generation, or at least I shouldn't generalize, I guess, but guys who worked shift work, like most of my parents, my friends' parents did growing up here, there were a lot of cops and firemen and construction workers and, and a lot of blue collar jobs. They, their marriages in some way, ways, I think, were more equitable than what we're dealing with now. I, I really, so my dad might work, he'd be home by four o'clock. My mom worked for GM um, in the secretarial pool for 20 years. She might not be home until seven. So I remember a lot, my dad, you know, making dinner or brushing our hair in the morning before school, getting us out. If his shift, let's say, started in the afternoon and they both just sort of passed the baton and did what they could. Whereas now it seems like one part of a marriage works, you know, insane hours until like eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. And then the other one is doing everything else. Right. Because there's no way for two people to do that. Plus have kids unless you just, you're okay with somebody else basically raising them. Well, yeah. And then the thing too, is that like in uh, my parents' generation, the baby boomers, like that was a generation where it was still possible for there to be one breadwinner. Um, yeah. I mean, I feel like that's like really increasingly rare. I don't know. I don't know hardly anybody who has that situation. Uh, I shouldn't say that. I mean, I know a few of like privileged people, but uh, you know, broadly speaking, that seems like, you know, our generation and especially the generations under us, like it's going to be really hard for anyone. Like, how, how is that even possible? Were wages higher? Like it doesn't make I sense. I don't know. It doesn't make well, sense. Well, I remember anything. like my parents told us they paid, you know, like $50,000 for their house in 1979, which felt like a ripoff. And so they kept it secret for a long time that they paid that much. And that was probably a year's salary, like that represented. But now it seems like if you buy a house or an apartment, the amount that you pay is several times what at least my friends are making in a year. And I think that's part of it. Housing has gotten so expensive, but we've also been paying student loans, you know, for since we got, there's things like that. And and there's monthly bills now that they didn't have them. Like would my parents ever get cable? You know, they still would never pay for cable or, you know, internet or cell phones. And these are all things that we, I mean, I feel like an old lady when I talk like this. Kids today, <laughs> but it is, so there, your, your there's parent, something to it. Your parents don't have cable? You know, I think they have basic cable now. They have, because you can't, they used to have like channel two through 13. Yeah. I don't know if it's the same out there. And you could still get that even if you didn't have cable. But then they did something where basically you can't have anything if you don't have a little bit of cable right so they do but they have like nothing yeah like i remember when i was a kid you just turned the tv on and the antenna caught the signal and right god i sound old saying that but that was that was no the, it's true that was the early days but um i think it's great you could, we, like getting bang of, the tv and get yeah. better reception <laughs> right right uh but i you know i'm all for uh no cable you know like i think that like we, we go without it and just use the internet for our tv and do the whole Apple TV thing, and it's been great. Oh, you know, I was just telling my husband, maybe we should look into that. It's only nine bucks a month. You get like Netflix, and you get Hulu Plus. It's like eighteen dollars a month, and like yeah, that, the, have... the Apple TV receiver is a hundred bucks. So, you know, you buy that one time, and then you pay eighteen dollars a month as opposed to like a hundred and whatever it is for cable. But then, what do you do about internet? Like, do you get screwed by your provider because you don't do the triple 
Um, package? I don't. Th- I mean, I don't know if we get screwed. We we just pay for it separately. You know, like we had Direct TV and then we had, uh, you know, AT and T for our internet. So they've never been connected. You know what I'm saying? Like we. Never, oh, I see. We never had a single provider, but I'm a big fan of like going digital for television because like you don't have the ads. You can watch everything on demand. Uh, and then do you have no landline? You just call through. I noticed this is a Skype call. Yeah, but we have uh, we have uh, Vonage. So it's internet based okay. internet based landline. So is this getting too personal? No, it's, it's, it's all good. Do you want my social? Okay. Do you want my social? I'm interested in all this because there has to be a way to be better. Yeah, you know, I, I'm. You crap. know, the thing about it is that like I, it's not that I don't like TV; it's that I like it too much. And so what I would do when I had cable and I had like all those channels is that I would I would sit there and flip, and I would, yeah. I would get sucked into like static, and I would also take in way too much cable news. Um, which is like a way too much Kardashians. Just no, not that. It's more like like MSNBC and like I'd watch yeah. I'd watch Fox yeah. just to get like myself riled up, or I just and it's like that kind of stuff becomes really toxic for me after a while, and it's just so silly. And then you're watching commercials, and like now when I go to watch something, like I, I pick it, and there's more of a there's more of a um, strategy involved. If that makes yeah, sense, you know. So I, I'm almost the opposite. I I only watch two channels. I think I watched. NBC and HBO, and that's like it. That's it. We'll so see. why do I have a thousand channels in between those two things? Exactly. You should you should streamline. I'm telling you, this this Hulu yeah. Plus Netflix thing is the way to go. Yeah, it's a good idea. So uh, so okay. So childhood, um, you know, hardworking immigrant Irish uh, parents. Um, did either of your um, parents have any kind of literary bent? Like where where did you come from? God no. Um, I don't know. This has been much discussed. I mean, you know, I hear writers all the time saying they grew up around, you know, their parents made them act out, you know, these Ibsen plays as kids. And <laughs> right. I, we just didn't have that. I don't, I don't know. And, and in a way, it's kind of taking the pressure off being parent. You know, people are like, do you have him reading the classics? I'm like, no, he's going to find them if he's going to find them. You know, it depends on what he's interested in. And so, no, we, I remember... My mom and dad um, subscribed to Reader's Digest. Sure. Quotable, and we get qu- that. Quotable quotes. I used to always read that. <laughs> oh, I used to read drama in real life. Um, it was always like somebody had a chainsaw out in the woods and it hit metal and like all the blades flew off and basically his leg was severed and he was in the middle of nowhere. What's going to happen? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't I don't know where it came from. We went to the library a lot and I'd pick out books and... I always knew I liked to read, and my mom says I would ask her to write down things for me before I could write and then read it back, and then I'd probably, like, ask her to change things. But I, I had imaginary friends as a kid, which they were a little bit worried about. Do you still, um, do you still have imaginary? I guess you still do in some ways. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess in some ways it's true. <laughs> One imaginary friend um, jumped off the roof of my aunt's house on a, at a Fourth of July barbecue and Apparently, I was inconsolable, and they thought that was very strange for you know a four-year-old to have an imaginary friend commit suicide. <laughs> but I think it's all connected to the same thing, you know. Yeah, well, uh, and there's like an Irish. I mean, there is kind of an Irish tradition, like culturally, like a storytelling tradition, even if it's just like oral um, storytelling. I mean, is that that's well? That's the thing. Yeah, there is. Sorry, I didn't interrupt you. Yeah, I mean, I think my parents have a good ear for a story. And they always know the funny parts. Like if we run into someone and they say some ridiculous thing, you know, 
they can, and, and they've also said very normal things. They will always know which part is funny and, and why, or which is the most notable thing to take away from any situation. I think that instinct is, is right. And probably where I got that from. Um, but I, you know, I don't know. Who knows? It's a good sense of humor. You seem like you have a good sense of humor. Dry, um, dry, but you know, dry. Yeah, yeah. People have said that. People. <laughs> Thank you. I accept it. <laughs> uh, so, people say your fiction is not funny. They say, Oh, okay. Thanks. I don't know. Was it, but you're not trying to be funny. I mean, are you, are, uh, no, yeah. I guess I'm not, but I don't know. I don't know. No, because I think it's interesting. Sometimes you have these people who write these really funny books, but then in person you're like, where's the funny? You know, it's like it only comes out in their work, but then you have somebody who might be funny in real life, but then their work is really dark. And uh, I, had a t I had a talk with um, an author, James Scott. I could be screwed. Yeah, no. My memory's horrible, but it's, I think it's James Scott. And he was saying that like pretty much the same thing where you know, he's like this really affable, funny, witty guy in conversation. And I think all of his friends were expecting you know, friends and family were expecting his book to be really funny. And then it was like this really dark, um, bloody, <laughs> you know, grim story that came out. Yeah. of it. I, I find that fascinating, you know, how like we exercise certain parts of ourselves in our art, um, that we might not show otherwise in like our daily lives. Yeah, I think that's true for me. And also that you want a relief in your daily life from whatever that thing is you're focused on yeah. or feel is urgent, you know, in your in your work. So typhoid Mary, uh, how did you get into this? I mean, you, it seems like there's an element of history that you, um, latch onto with your work. Like, you yeah, I guess that's fair. I, you know, this has been an interesting year in labels. Um, when it comes to fiction, I've noticed that I keep getting billed as a writer of historical fiction. Um, whereas some people write books, novels that are set in the past. Did <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. That's apparently a very big difference. Um, and so I, I went into this, I guess, knowing probably with my own prejudices about the genre. Um, but then, you know, you get to a point where you just don't care. And I found, I found her story to be really interesting. I mean, I'm not interested in a, in a history lesson or in, fetishizing the past in any way. And I don't, and I think there are a lot of historical novels that sort of, you know, it's all like horses and outfits <laughs> and things. And I, I don't care about that, but I do think that history lives in the present. And if I can feel the, that, you know, that time is not that far away, there's something haunting about that, you know, that we're all living in the same spot really, you know, if you look far enough away. Um, and I really thought her story was fascinating and that there was a hole in it. You know, we didn't know that much about her as a person, you know, as a woman with characteristics that had nothing to do with typhoid fever. Um, but I never thought I'd write a novel this historical you know, well, that required how, this much research. How did you, like, Mary, like and just so uh, people listening uh, who might not have, like, real context for Typhoid Mary, like, can you give us, like, briefly who she is or who she was? So she was a cook um, who was from Ireland. She came to the U.S. in the 1880s, and um, as a teenager, she lived with an aunt in New York, 
And like a lot of Irish women, she wanted to find work and she got work probably in the beginning as an assistant um, chef or cook. And then she started getting jobs as a cook in New York City. And when she was in her late 30s, she was working for a wealthy family on the Upper East Side um, when the health department came knocking and said, we have discovered that you've been passing typhoid fever through your cooking. And at this point, no one knew the average person and, and really most doctors had no idea that you, a person could catch typhoid fever from a person who had no symptoms. So she was the first healthy carrier of typhoid fever discovered in North America. She had no symptoms. She never recalled having it. Nobody who ever worked with her ever recalled her being sick with it. And so that you could harbor a disease and pass it on without showing signs of it was groundbreaking. And so she didn't believe them when, she came, when they came searching for her. And um, she gave them a really hard time. They came back for her three times, and finally they had to carry her away by force, put her in isolation. And she basically, I mean, I'm condensing the story, but she basically had to stay quarantined or at least set apart from society and her own life for the rest of her life with one brief interlude. So it's a so, happy, so it's a happy story. <laughs> oh yeah, right. That's why I'm so funny in real life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, I mean, it's it's a tragic story, I think, and it's she has been cast as the villain, I think, for for over a hundred years. Um, there've been a lot of creations of her as a fictional character, and they've all been, you know, there's even that cartoon of her. You know, she runs around with like Batman sometimes that. Marvel comic Typhoid Mary um, and she's always the bad guy but I thought at the time when I learned a little bit more about her story she was just a little bit older than I was and she seemed to like her job and she seemed to be good at it and basically I started figuring out that this was more about class and personality than it was about anything to do with health and as soon as I figure out something is about class then I'm just hooked and I, I think it really was. I think if she'd infected a whole, you know, row of tenements in Little Italy and they'd all died, nobody would have cared. But because she brought this poor person's disease to the Upper East Side, you know, everyone went nuts. Right. So when you say that you're hooked on class and stuff like that, is that something that you, um, you know, as the child of, uh, you know, first or first generation American growing up outside of New York City, I'm sure you had um, proximity to... Uh, you know, the, the city and just all different levels of, um, socioeconomic <clears throat> status. Like, is that something that you felt, uh, acutely as a, you know, as a child growing up? You know, my parents are really good about not, as my mom would say, don't look at what anybody else has. It has nothing to do with you, you know, concentrate on yourself. They really didn't have any keep up with the Joneses about them. And I think we don't either, but there are, I remember going to Barnard before college, um, our experience with the city was mostly the Bronx where all the Irish people were and my uncles had pubs there and, you know, we'd have family parties there and Manhattan is a whole different thing. Um, and I remember I was at Barnard the first time anybody in my life ever asked me what my dad does for a living. And I had always been raised to think that was a really rude question. You can never ask what somebody's parent does for a living. And then looking back, I realized it's because everybody said, you know, it was a bricklayer or a plumber or something like that. And nobody talked about it. Nobody cared. It was just work. Right. But at Barnard, it was like, um, 
not with everybody, but it came up. It was like a chip you presented. Yeah, exactly. I didn't feel you know, it. I, I didn't feel anything like that until I went to college either. Like I had no sense of it. Uh, yeah. At all. But then you get to college for some reason and that stuff starts to creep in. And I'm glad I didn't. I, I know people who um, were more bothered by it, I guess. I was mostly fascinated by it. And I think, you know, the kids, the girls whose moms put them on birth control in eighth grade, you know, just to be safe. <laughs> and their houses were full of books. And they're I'm like, I can't believe parents can come in such different shapes and sizes right and we all end up in the same spot which is what i took away from it like i'm here and you're here but you don't you don't have like a chip on your shoulder about it you didn't bristle at all like you didn't have any like negative interactions with people along those lines or not along those lines no i mean and in college it doesn't matter in a way it's something i noticed after college that in the dorms like we're all living in the same kind of place you know, you all, and, and back then even there was no cell phone. So we're all like asking for 10 minutes on the landline to talk to our boyfriends. You know, everybody has the same size bed. Everybody has the college issued stuff. It was after college when I was sharing a studio with one of my friends that was filled with mice. And we were like, you know, there was no sink in the bathroom. And our suite mate had like a two bedroom uh, you know, in Chelsea, in an elevator building, we're like, oh, yeah, oh, like we didn't know this. This is a thing now. Should have been her roommate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh no, she didn't need a roommate. But you know, I guess you pick your friends. You kind of have six senses about these things, and it ends up not really mattering that much. You know, a lot, aside from a lot of jokes. But I think wanting to be a writer already sets a person apart, and you can't compare yourself because. It's just going to be a miserable exercise. Yeah. Well, when did you know? Just like, did you did you know you wanted to be a writer as an undergrad? Yeah. I, I mean, I always knew that's what I wanted to do, but I didn't know if I would be able to support myself. And so I always knew I'd have jobs that I didn't care about. And so, like, I think for a lot of people who graduate from college, your job defines you in a way. And your job is the most prestigious thing about you, maybe. But for me, I knew that I'd have shitty jobs because I needed to pay rent, but I, my, you know, real thing was the thing I would do at night or on the weekends. And so that I was already sort of out of that game because I was already doing something weird. Can you support yourself now? I mean, I know you're married, so there's probably like a dual thing happening, but have you gotten to the point where you're making decent money? I mean, I can, thank God. My husband was actually unemployed for almost two years. Um, Right. And it happened like right around the time I sold my last book. Um, and we thought about that, like how lucky I've been. But, you know, it's not. I worry about every book that's coming then, you know, and. So I've written two and that's been fine. But every sale, you know, depends on the sale of the last book right. or how sales. And so I think it's something I'll always worry about. But for now. Well, thank, well thank God you're doing this podcast because this is going to just blow things up for you. Exactly. Thank God. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I also like teaching. I teach part-time and who knows, I might do that in a more full-time way when um, my little one is, you know, three or four. Right. Well, yeah. So. And the kids, then you have kids. And I mean, it's like, how do you do it all? You know, because uh, it's hard enough to write books when you're working shit jobs and, you know, living in a studio or whatever it is, but then you have a family and, 
uh, that's a tough balancing act. And some people really can pull it off. Other people, it's, it seems to bog them down. Like, what's your secret? Just don't sleep? <laughs> Just don't sleep. That's actually number one. Yeah. I would nurse my little one. Um, I remember I was trying to finish this damn book. And it just felt like it was never going to happen. He'd get up to nurse at like two or three in the morning. And I'm like, well, it's quiet now. You know, let's just stay up. And that is not healthy, but it helped, you know, for about six months. I mean, I don't sleep a lot. But like, what does that, that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? You don't sleep a lot. Like, are you somebody who can run on like three hours of sleep? I can run on, I'd say four um, for a long time. Especially, it depends on where I am in a book. So if I'm just at the beginning of something, then that's a lot harder. But if I feel any sort of momentum at all, I, I like wake up in the middle of the night like, I have to get back to this because you got it. I just want this to happen. Yeah. You know, and kids are great, but it's like being so busy, but also, God forgive me, so bored at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you know, I don't know. Well, no, it's like, you know, when you're doing, uh, there's a lot of routine, you know, and there's a lot of like puppet. I do a lot of puppet shows lately. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, and it's fun, you know, but like, I'm like, as a dad, like I'm really good at like doing things. Like we go out, I can take her somewhere. Uh, but like doing like play, like with dolls and stuff, I'm, it's not, I'm not super great at that. <laughs> uh, I'll do it. And like, my wife is always telling me that it's important you know, to, to play, yeah. to play with your kids and to like get involved in like imagination and stuff like that. But you know, I, I, I understand what you're saying. You sit down and you do, you do enough voices with like a stuffed like elephant. And after a while you start to just like do it on autopilot. And I'm, I'm like, like, when are these kids' parents going to come home? Yeah. <laughs> well, and I'm like, I, I feel like, you know, I, I sometimes scold myself. I'm like, I'm, I'm just on autopilot here. I like, I need to get into character. I'm not like really, yeah, I think having boys is, I, I don't know, maybe there really isn't a difference. No, there's a difference. I see, though, my friends who have girls, they kind of, like, sit and help and color and chat. And I can say to them, let's go outside and race. And they will race, you know. So I don't have to, you know, go to the puppet show probably as often as you do. Yeah, no, it's different. But like, I have to, like, practice karate, <laughs> you know. Which is good for, like, working out aggression or, like, you know. I think, yeah. that, I think it might, it seems like it might be, um, well, I don't know. It depends what your, what your, um, taste is, but it seems like it might be more gratifying than like repeat puppet show. At least you get to do the martial arts. <laughs> Maybe get a little workout in. Um, the difference between kids and the crappy jobs though, is the mental space. I think, you know, if you have this job where you're on autopilot, but you're making, you know, $20 an hour, you can put your head in a different place, especially if the job is easy. But with kids, it, it's hard to switch from, you know, your worry about them and your hopes for them and everything about them into, you know, a character. Yeah. Or just like, just to, just to clear out space, you know, like yeah, to, get, exactly. to get your head empty and to get yourself into a, a relaxed enough mode to be able to work creatively is tough. You know, it's, yeah. I can, I can totally, I can totally relate to like, well, it's three in the morning, but it sure is quiet. You know, you know, yeah. you, you know, your babies are sleeping, you know, that's kind of like a, when you know they're sleeping, there's something sort of relaxing about that, or at least there yeah. is for me. So yeah, me too. Maybe I need to just stay up until she's asleep and then work all night. But if you're working on something kind of dark, 
it's hard then when they, I mean, it's such a relief in some ways when they get up and they're chipper and they're asking for Cheerios and they're full of hugs. But sometimes I feel like I'm on another plane, you know, for like 30 or 45 minutes. You're like, mommy, you just, mommy just, uh, spent four hours with typhoid Mary. <laughs> yeah. A toddler just died. Um, <laughs> God. in mommy's laptop so <laughs> i'm gonna squeeze you extra tight this morning oh, you know sure. but it is like very odd like that and then and then there's this weird thing where the other mommies see me around so nobody thinks i do anything and then a you know a book comes out every couple of years yeah. you know so it's like i'm a stay-at-home mom but then when i say i'm working everyone thinks i'm lying yeah. like writing is a weird thing if you're in a blue-collar town Sure. Like, sure, it's a job. Sure, it is. Right, whatever you say, unless unless the thing becomes like some huge like uh, Oprah sensation, it's got to become. Oh well, Oprah, yes. If it has to do with Oprah, then it's real. If she were to bless, then all of a sudden, like you know, then it becomes this huge thing. It's funny how, like the you know the general population views the literary thing. I guess it's really hard to relate to for people who aren't familiar with it. You know, yeah, it makes sense. But it, you know, if it's like. Uh, you, you talk to like, I talk to relatives. I don't know how many relatives I've talked to who are like, you know what you need to do is you need to write a book like that John Grisham, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. He's doing well. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh God, you like, I don't know what to say to that. It's just, I just sort of nod, but how, what do you say when they say, is it doing well? Um, like, I've, I I, now, yeah. I mean, nowadays I'm just like, uh, not really. <laughs> um, I've gone the opposite. I go, yes. yes. Oh my God. It's, it's probably, killing. it's probably smarter to do that, you know, because at the, at the, like, really? it's aspirational. You know, I think it's good to put that out there. I should start doing that again. They're like, but I haven't seen it in the movie theater. That's right. how I know. <laughs> right. I don't know. Why is this not a made for television, you know, like event? Or people say, oh, I'm glad I ran into you. I want to talk to you about your book. And then they don't say anything. I'm like, okay, how about now? I don't know. I'm ready. I'm ready. Um, all right. I, you know. Yeah. It's a weird Would job. I like it? I don't know. Yeah. Would you? You'd have to read it. Yeah. It's a big commitment. Or men say, oh, I'm going to tell my wife. I'm definitely going to tell my wife about that book. <laughs> or, or, you know, what? it's funny, too, is when somebody... Uh, you know, you've been like slaving away from 3 a.m. until 7 a.m. on this thing for like a year at a time or whatever. And then you're like having a casual conversation with somebody and they're like, you know what? I'm going to write a book someday. Like, oh, yes. As if like they're going to like do the dishes or something like super, yeah. you know, and you're like, yeah. you've been like, it's just, a, it's just a question of getting around to it. Yeah, exactly. Like once I can clear out some time in my schedule, I'm going to crank out a book, you know. Do you get a lot of um, children's book pitches? Uh, you know, pe people have started to tell me that I should write a children's book. Because I have oh, but they don't pitch their own children's book. No, not that, oh, not yet. Okay. Somebody like one, I want to say some parent at our school wrote one, and we've gotten that one from them or something. But like, oh well, then they've wrote, they've written it, and they've done it. It's not like yeah. What do you think? I was thinking of writing a book about gratitude featuring frogs. <laughs> I'm like, I, it's not it's not exactly the same. I don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. That's the thing. I don't know what to write. Like I don't know. If my sensibility meshes well enough, uh, I, you have to, I'd have to find the right way to do it. You know, because I, yeah. I, I, do, I do have a new appreciation for children's literature because oh, I, yeah. I read it every day, you know, like yet another way in which you change when you start, you know, get into parenthood. But 
um, I can get really emotionally moved by a, a children's book in ways that like, yeah. I struggle to be moved by um, novels for adults. I don't know if you Does had... your daughter like Amos and Boris? No. What is that? William Sneak. Oh, my gosh. It's heartbreaking. It's beautiful. Okay. It's about a mouse and a whale who become dear friends over great distances and obstacles, as you can imagine, because one's a mouse and one's a whale. Yeah. But the language is really beautiful. The gem-like radiance of the mouse. It's, it's gorgeous. Okay. I, I always want them to pick that book if they never yeah, I, I always they want, try, like, I try to steer my trucks. Book. Yeah, they want yeah transformers or whatever it is. You, you try to steer her toward what you want, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, like there's certain books, and then you also are trying to steer them towards like on some nights. It's like just pick the short one. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> like, it's a picture book. She picks up like the 75 page like Doctor Seuss, oh, like, like like you know, just tongue twister after tongue twister. I'm just like, I can't do it. I can't. You know. My husband picks these ones with like they're like Norwegian legends from. I don't know where he gets them, but they're all like two inches thick and have names like, you know, Nausgarder, Ven, something. Yeah. I can't say any of them. <laughs> and he's always conveniently, you know, gone when they select that book. You know what? This is daddy's special time. Why don't we save <laughs> this for when daddy comes home? Right. Um, no. Okay. So let me ask you about uh, movie stuff since we just talked about that. Like, has there been, this seems like there could be a book that could be translatable. Um, has it been optioned? Um, it has been optioned um, by Elizabeth Moss, you know, the actor from oh, sure. Mad okay. Men. Yeah. yeah. Who I was very excited about because I really like her and Top of the Lake was one of my favorite things that I've watched in the last couple of years. What's that? Um, Why do I not know that? Oh, Top of the Lake. It's it's this mini series she did. It was like a six part thing. Um, I think it was with this. It was on the Sundance Channel here. I saw it on Netflix. I just watched things all at once. Um, maybe in conjunction with the BBC, but it was set in New Zealand. She plays a New Zealand cop, um, and it's just weird and great. It's like a detective mystery. There's a murder. There's a baby. Um, but it's, it's just really good. Oh, cool. So anyway, and she, she, and she looks like the part, you know, like when you look at old pictures of, uh, Mary, you know, Mary Mallon, like I could see her playing that role. You know, I thought of her mostly as Peggy from Mad Men, but then when I saw Top of the Lake, I realized she can do anything cause it's so different. Yeah. Um, so, you know, who knows if, if it'll go, I've heard of these things, you know, they get optioned over and over and then it never happens. And that may be the case, but it was nice. I mean, I think that Mary Mallon is a difficult character because she's not very likable. And the movies seem to want, you know, people who are more likable. Plucky. Um, a plucky heroine. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think they'd have to kind of, you know, make her maybe more vulnerable and all that. I don't know. I don't know what they would do, but so did you meet I with? Did happy. you meet with Elizabeth Moss? Like when the thing got off? No, no. It was just it just it happened. all came through her agents and my agents, and we got you know lots of papers and notaries and things like that. Um, but no. Well, it's exciting. It's very early. I mean, we just signed it, signed all this stuff a, a little while ago. So oh, well, we'll see. That's cool. And so. Um, you now have this book coming out. Are you touring? Like, have you already done the tour? What's, what's your schedule? Um, I did a tour last year of the U S and I went to, um, England and Ireland and then paperback comes out next week, but 
I'm staying local. I have a few things, um, but not like it was last year. Do you like the tour? Do you like that part of it? Um, yes and no. I mean, it was hard to figure out the kids from afar. Uh-huh. Um, and so I liked kind of, I decided the best thing would be just to, instead of going and coming and going and coming to just knock it all out in like one giant stretch. So I literally was in San Francisco for, I think 11 hours, you know, or something like that. Then I'd like, I flew from from Boston to San Francisco to like back again, I guess back to New York and to Virginia the next day. It was all very quick. And so I think if, if I had more leisure next time I'd want to spend like two nights in a place. Um, yeah, that sounds exhausting. So, um, but it was fun. I mean, it was exciting. My first book I got sent, you know, I sent myself exactly two places and that was it. So this, you know, it was a sign that they were taking it seriously and everybody was hoping for it. And it it was nice to feel that, you know, faith coming from the published for sure. For, yeah, definitely. And, uh, the 535 national book foundation thing. Yeah. What was that? How did that happen? How were you notified? I came out of clear blue. I mean, I just got an email one day that this amazing thing had happened. And um, Julie Glass was a judge uh, for the Penn Hemingway Award in 2010, for which I got honorable mention. And, you know, I remember chatting with her at the Kennedy Library during the, you know, after the ceremony and all that. And I thought it was really cool to meet her because I really like her work. And then, you know, a year later, um, this email came that she selected me for this 535 thing. I mean, who knows how many people under 35 she knew. <laughs> so she had tapped and found out there were 36. You know, I don't know. I didn't ask. Okay. So what's, the, it, what's the currency? What, what kind of currency do you get from making such a list? You know, is the, did you feel a shift in your career? Did people pay more attention to you? you know, I never know what to make of these things. I had not heard of it. And so I, you know, I'm like, well, this has made my day and sort of moved on. But then my, I knew once my, my agent gets excited about like nothing, unless it's a big thing. And when he was really thrilled, I knew that it was a good thing. And it was, it was basically wind in my sails at a moment when I really needed it because my first book, you know, it got this little thing, you know, the Penn Hemingway honorable mention, but, you know, it didn't, like, fly off the shelves. It wasn't, it was fine. And second books are not, you know, are sometimes harder books. They're harder what? To sell than first books, sure. I think. yeah. And so I think it was at a time when I needed it, um, just a little bit of added momentum. And Was this, was this from, when Fever was about to go out to the market or something? Yes. Oh, it was yeah. right before I was going to submit it. Well, no, um, no wonder your agent was psyched. He had something to tell yeah, him. You know, he could be like, right. by the way. Exactly. And so, so what was the sales process like for Fever? You didn't have like a, a deal. You didn't have like a two book deal. And then this was the, no. The, so you were just going out fresh. Um, going out fresh. You're five under 35. And then what, how did that, was the sales process quick? Did it, people, you know, all bite on it? And was there an auction and stuff? Um, there was a, uh, what do you call it when it's like going to be an auction and then a preempt. A preempt. Yeah, that's what happened, a preempt. My first book, um, I mean, I, I'm very close with the person who ended up editing my book, but Harcourt and Houghton Mifflin like merged or one bought the other at the same time. 
so basically I had two editors and about, you know, five different publicists in the span of about six months. And it was just, I didn't know that that's not the way it's supposed to be, you know, and I felt like it got a little bit lost in the shuffle. And so we, we submitted it of course, cause to Houghton Mifflin because they had the, um, what do you call it? The option on it. And then I tend to, you know, if there's anything good, if they want, I say, okay, great. Let's take it. Goodbye. We're done. And you know, my agent's more cause he's an agent. Who's your agent? Uh, his name is Chris Calhoun. Okay. Um, he used to be at Sterling Lord and he started his own agency about two years ago called the Chris Calhoun agency. And he just thought we should send it out a little wider. So we did. And then there was, um, there was a good amount of interest. Thank God. And so it was, it, it ended up nicely, but I don't do well in that like waiting. Yeah, no, neither. That's the worst part. You're powerless. Uh, it's horrible. And some days you w- wake up and feel it's going to turn out great. And then some days you feel like you're an idiot. Yeah. How do you deal with it? Do you do, uh, do you have any like, I watch a lot of movies Okay. like during the day, which is something that I would never allow myself to do otherwise. Um, I don't know. Work out, stare at your phone, which I also don't. <laughs> Yeah, stare at my phone. Check that it works. <laughs> uh, make sure again. make sure the ringer's on. I always find that good like good news comes via phone call, bad news comes via email. Yeah, that's the way it goes. I'd come up with like other reasons to call my agent. <laughs> like, oh hey, no no, this has nothing to do with that. <laughs> Just wondering if you had that you know royalty statement from blah 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 that I have never cared about before. So, um, but it ended. Thank God. So did you, did you have prior to your first book selling, did you have like, you know, novels in the drawer and false starts and rejections and all the kind of stuff that people usually go through? Um, I mean, I've had a lot of stories that never went anywhere, never sold drawer full of stories. I'd say, I I honestly think it's harder to sell a short story for me than it is to sell a novel, but no, I thank God I'd never written, you know, a book length novel. I was always scared to start it. I'd seen people go through that and I didn't know how you keep up that momentum for like 300 pages. How fast do you Um, work? Do you work pretty fast? Um, I think, I don't know. I mean, each book took, my first one took about three years. Second book took about four years. I think I have a long stewing period. Like there are days when I don't write or a stretch when I don't write. And then I'm sort of a binge writer. Once I start, I have to keep going. Um, I don't, I don't know. I try to write a thousand words a day when I write and I try to write four days a week. So, and, but oftentimes I don't make that, especially lately. Well, you've got other things on your plate. Are you working on a new book? Yeah. You are. I'm trying to figure it out. It's at that horrible point when I think I might want to scrap it, but then you don't know if you're just, full of self-doubt. I mean, no one can tell you is the problem. Yeah. I wish there was like there's a board. I wish there was someone you could just call. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So how long have you been working on this new book? I mean, like you, you did your tour, the fever came out and then are you the, are you the kind of person who like the day you finish and like send you? No. No. Okay. You you take, you take a little time and then you, no. Yeah. You had, I don't understand how people do that. I've talked to some people who do. I think they're just type a, you know, in the extreme. I know. But how do you get, I couldn't even, I mean, I had this other idea for a novel that I just ended up scrapping because it was horrible. And I was sort of thinking about it while I was on tour. But how can you talk about one book all day, 
all the time, it felt like, and then go work on another book. I just can't do it. Yeah. So I needed to wait, I think, until I was not talking about fever that much so that I could just, and I also know once I start something new, I'm, I'm always over the thing, the, the last thing I've done. You have to have it like so full, I, fully out of your system. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I wouldn't want, I knew once I was fully in a new book, I wouldn't really want to talk about the old book that much. Um, but it, it, it did, it did feel like I had to get it out of my system. So what's the new book about? Do we, can we get any hints or is it too early? Are you superstitious? It's not that I'm, I'm not superstitious. I just honestly don't know what things are about until I have them fully drafted. It seems like. Okay. Is it is it historical? Can you just like? No. No. It's not historical. It's part that takes place in like 1980s, but um, it's contemporary. It's sort of about a love relationship over a very long period of time. Okay. Well, uh, uh, I, I, I won't make you. I won't make you break it down in any further detail. I know that's painful, especially yeah. when, especially when it's this early <laughs> and this it's just, I don't know, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. But, uh, it's been, it's been great fun talking with you. Uh, I congratulate you on all of your success, uh, with, you know, with the latest book, but just, you know, overall 535 and, uh, I wish you luck with the next project and, uh, we'll be interested to see what it turns out to be. If I'm still bragging about 535 and I'm 60, <laughs> someone needs to intervene. I nominate you. Okay. You seem like you had, okay. Well, good talking to you too, Brad. Thanks. Okay, you guys, there you go. That's it. That's Mary Beth Keen. Go get her novel. It is called Fever. It's out there now from Scribner. You can find Mary Beth online at marybethkeen.com. She's on the Facebook, and you can follow her on Twitter, where her handle is at Mary underscore Beth underscore Keen. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, hey, don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload right to the app. You don't have to do anything. It just happens. And you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So what does this mean? Here's how it works. You go download the app onto your device, whatever device you have. The app is free. You then get access to the most recent 50 episodes of this program free of charge. doesn't cost you a penny. And then from there, if you would like to access the full archives uh, as well as premium content, you can sign up uh, for that stuff right there inside the app. It's $2 a month. That's it. Two bucks a month. And for just $2 a month, you get access to everything, every single episode, more than 260 and counting, all right there at your fingertips whenever you want to listen. You can hear my conversations uh, with a whole variety of writers, including George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, David Shields, Eric Larson, Susan Orlean, Tao Lin, Hari Kunzru, Ben Fountain, Sam Lipsight, you name it. So please go get the app. The app is free, and then sign up for premium for a couple of bucks a month and support this show. I would appreciate that, okay? So uh, the new website is up. I have to repeat that just to make sure the word gets out. And I should have my first written post up on the site sometime soon. It's coming. I'm working on it. Slaving away. And uh, I'm going to try to do one post a week. If I can muster that. That's the goal anyway. So check, on, you know, check in on the uh, website from time to time. Uh, follow me on the uh, Twitter. And uh, in addition to hearing me babble, you can now read me babble. 
Please remember that Oscar Wilde wrote Salome in French and that, uh, and that Antonello de Messina died of pleurisy. That's it for now. Thanks again to Mary Beth Keen. Go get her book. And I will be back on Wednesday with another episode, another conversation, and so on. Okay? Okay. Try to stay positive. It might, you know, it might not make any sense, but let's just try that anyway because I think it's better than the alternative. Right? I hope that's right. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs>